Romans chapter number 9. Of course, if you have a Bible like mine, it's, this section might have a, a paragraph heading that says uh, God's sovereign choice, and then you may have another heading toward the end of chapter 9 that says Israel's unbelief, Israel's unbelief. Now, from the beginning of Romans chapter 9, the apostle has been establishing that from the beginning of time, God has been choosing his people, and that this choosing of his people is not merely basis on the not merely on the basis of who your parents are. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad about that? Now, I have, I have the luxury and the blessing of having been raised by Christian parents. My mother and dad both became Christians in the mid-1970s. They were married in 1976. My father was ordained to the gospel ministry in 1978, October of 1978. Uh, that was the year I was born, April of 1978. So I was... I was born into the home of a, of a Christian pastor, and uh, in case my dad's listening, a Baptist pastor. <laughs> and so I've been, uh, I, I've, been sing- I've been blessed because I grew up going to church, and because my parents were Christian, Christians, that meant they made life choices that kind of rearranged the, tr- the, the, the path of my life. Uh, not, 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 not all of my cousins... Uh, were raised by Christian parents, and the trajectory of their life was very different. And uh, so I've, um, so in my case, it would not have been a bad deal for me to have, for my, for uh, my parents to have contributed to my salvation. But for other people, maybe even for my own father, his parents were not Christians. He did not grow up in a Christian home. He grew up in a home where his grandma and grandpa came by and they picked him up. You know, every Sunday that my grandparents would let him, let them take him and took, took him and his brothers uh, down to the little Pentecostal Holiness Church in uh, Mattoon, Illinois. Then my dad would go to church and come back home to a family that was not Christian. And so God's choosing is not based on who our parents are, and it's not based on foreseen merit. If the Lord saved me or called me to be one of his children based on what he knew he would get out of me, I'll guarantee he got a bad, he got a bad deal because I have failed to live up. I've failed to live up to the name Christian many, many times in many, many ways. So in chapter 9, this is what the apostles dealing with God's sovereign choice, how God has been choosing his people down through the centuries, and then nothing, there's nothing new here. Paul is saying this is the way it's always been, and this is the way it's always going to be. Then in chapter 10, which we'll get to next Sunday, Lord willing, is the apostles going to tell us that this gospel message of grace it's the same message for everyone. There's not, a, there's not one message for the Jews and a different one for the Gentiles. There's just one message for everybody, and anyone who calls upon Christ will be saved. And let me just pause and beat that drum for a second. Anyone who calls out to Christ wanting to be saved will be saved. If that's not true, then this Bible is not true, and we should all just go fishing and give it up. Sell this building to somebody who wants to turn it into a, a dance hall. If that's not true, if whoever calls is not saved, if that's not true, there's no point. That's what Scripture says, though. Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you called out to him right now from where you are in your seat, from the the inner recesses of your heart, if you cried out to him and said, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come into my heart and save me and take me to heaven. Forgive my sins. If you were to do that right now in this second, the Bible says God would save you. He would have you for his own. He would bring you into his family. He would make you to live 
for the first time in your life. Well, that's a true thing. That's what Romans 10 is going to tell us. Now, in verses 15 to 18 of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, he points back to Pharaoh, and he shows that both Pharaoh's rise to power and his ruin was a part of God's purpose. Now, look at chapter 9, verse 15 to 18. Listen to God's word. The Apostle says that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what God, Paul says is that Pharaoh's rise to power was a part of God's purpose, is that sometimes God lifts people up so he can take them down. This is what Paul is saying. Remember, Paul is talking about God's sovereign choice, that God is sovereignly doing these things, that God is working out his own plans in the world. And part of that plan is the rise of evil leaders sometimes in a government, in a nation, just so he can take them down later on to show them that, they, that he truly is the Lord. The Lord of glory, as a true and absolute sovereign, he dispenses mercy to whomever he chooses, and he withholds it in the same way. And it's the same way with Israel. Within ethnic Israel, there is a chosen people who are the true Israel. These are people of faith, people who believe the messages of God, and those who ultimately come later on later centuries to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this chosen people within ethnic Israel. No one goes to heaven just because they're a Jew, just because they can trace their lineage back to Abraham. Nobody goes to heaven for that reason. They go to heaven because of personal faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the same way in the Gentile world, too. You don't get to go to heaven or have any, or you don't get to be ahead of the line because of who your family is. You only get to go to heaven through faith in Christ. And, this, and whoever believes in Christ is part of this chosen people. It's also within the Gentile world. Now, the role of the Gentile and the Jew is a key theme in the book of Romans. Paul leads off with this in 1, 2, and 3. He talks about this. He says to the Jews, he says, just because you're a Jew and you've had, and you've had unparalleled access to God doesn't mean you're northbound when your life is over. Just because you're a Jew. He deals with this several times in, in Romans. Sometimes people say that Paul is so... Uh, some people accuse Paul, at least Griffith, Griffith Thomas in his commentary, he says that some people say that Paul is almost anti-Semitic because he is saying that the, just being a Jew isn't good enough. But that's, Paul's not anti-Semitic. He's anti-rejection of Christ. The Jews had rejected their Messiah. They rejected Christ, and so he's dealing with them along these lines. Now, this role of the Gentiles and Jews is a key theme in Romans. And it's here in Romans that we see the mystery of Ephesians 2 and 3 hinted at. Now, the Bible was written in a, in a chronological order, and the book of Romans was written in about 60 A.D. What year? About, I, I'm sorry to ask you that question, but I know it's drowsy outside, and I'm afraid the drowsiness is going to creep into here. <laughs> so, in about 60 A.D., the book of Romans was written. So, when was Romans written, class? You guys are great. And then in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians was written in about 64 or 65 A.D. And so Paul here in Romans talks about this hint, hinting at that there is a, a big people of God that's made up of Jews and Gentiles that's called the church. 
And then in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, Paul explicitly says, this is the thing. This is one, one people, one body of Christ called the church in Romans 2 and 3. Now this new people are people who are believing on Christ, and they're the true and eternal people of God. And then as you read through the rest of the New Testament, you find out that these people, they have a better relationship with God through Christ in the new covenant, and that the fate of these new believing people does not depend upon their performance, but on the grace and unchanging character of God. It's a great reading in the book of Hebrews where God talks about this covenant he's made with man through grace. And it says, because there was no greater power, he swore by himself and said, I swear by my own name that you will be my people and I'll put a new song in your mouth. In Psalms. Now, in Romans 9, verses 19 to 24, it says this, because when you start talking about God choosing, choosing people and saying, this is my person, but this is not my person, this tends to rub us the wrong way. Now listen to the reading in Romans 9, 19 through 24. You will say to me then, if God hardens whom he wills and dispenses mercy to whomever he wills, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault or who can resist his will? Essentially, the apostle is saying, well, this ain't fair. So many may say, this does not seem fair, that God would do it this way. Now, I've, now I've, I've wrestled with this a lot in my life because I agree. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. But we don't really want fair, do we? Because if God treated you and me fairly, where do we wind up? We don't wind up in heaven. We wind up in hell. Because, because God knows what we are. Now you don't, you, you guys, how many of y'all feel like you know me a little bit? You know, Valerie raised her hand because she's the only one. Matt knows me, Lacey knows me. They really know me. But you guys don't know me. And even though Valerie knows me probably better than anybody on the face of the earth, Valerie doesn't know everything about me. But I'll tell you, there's two people who know everything about me. And that's me and God. And God knows what I'm like on the inside. God knows the blackness, the evilness of my own heart. He knows me. He knows what I think when somebody cuts me off in traffic. He knows what I think when somebody gives me an, an undeserved elbow under the basket. I was playing basketball in the, in the wintertime, and one of my fellow teammates, I was running, I, he, was, he, was on my, he was on the opposite team, I was running up to him to guard him. As I got up to him, he went, bam, and punched me right in the mouth and split my lip. Ron Roush knows I showed him the wound. The guy just, just drilled me straight left. And my first thought was, buddy, it's about to get on like Donkey Kong right here. But there's no glory in beating up a 65-year-old man. <laughs> so I just went, oh, you know, and then, you know. <laughs> I know what I am. If God treated me based on how I deserve to be treated, he would not make me his own child. But he brings us into his family by grace, 
through faith. By grace through faith, this graciousness. Now, in verses 19 through 24, the apostle basically says that God is not accountable to what fallen humanity believes to be unfair. God does as he pleases. This is the reading. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, willing to show his wrath and make, his, and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as he has called, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God is not accountable to what what we believe to be unfair. God does as he pleases, when he pleases, to whomever he pleases. This is what it means to be a sovereign. A sovereign. Now last, just about, about, I'll say it like this, a fortnight ago, Queen Elizabeth went on to her eternal rewards. And now we have a new king in England. He's not our king, he's their king. King Charles III. Have you seen, did you guys see the little video? There's, there's two little clips that kind of made, the, made the, the rounds on the internet. One of them is the pen video. Have you guys seen the pen video? Where he's writing with a pen and it leaks on his fingers and he's like, oh, I hate this! Ah! And he's just annoyed. I hate this. You know, he gets his, gets his hanky out and he's, oh, just, he's upset. And then when he's signing the, uh, the royal the royal contracts, you might say, that say he's going to uphold the Church of England, the Church of Scotland, etc. He sits down there and he goes to the little writing table to write. And there's this uh, uh, inkwell and pen tray sitting there. He's like, <laughs> Get it, take it away, take it away. See, he makes this disgusting little look and, and somebody says, you know, ooh, the king, he, you know, he can't just move it himself. He has to have somebody do it. And he's like, <laughs> and when I saw all those videos, I thought, well, that's exactly how a sovereign should act. If you're the potentate, if you're the king of the realm, of course that's how you act. You say, get that out of my sight. You know, nobody can sit in his presence unless he sits and permits him to sit. He could sit all day long and all, day, all night if he wants to, and everybody has to stand around him. He's a sovereign. He does as he sees fit. God also is sovereign. He's not accountable to you or to me. God is the king. We just sang the words, God, you are my king. He's the sovereign. Who who are we to think that we're his equal? Who are we to think that he should listen to us? He's a sovereign. And so this is what Paul is saying. You don't like this? Who are you to reply against God? God does what he pleases because he is a sovereign. Now, in this section, it says that God has these vessels of wrath. Now, there's an interesting pair of words in verse number 22. It's the words, what if? What if God? So many people interpret this to say that this is a hypothetical situation. What if God had vessels he prepared for wrath and vessels he prepared for mercy? And what if God endures the vessels of wrath so he can get to the vessels of mercy? It's called the hypothetical interpretation. 
And I think it probably, you, you could, I, I have no problem arguing it that way. I don't personally take it that way. But that is a, that is a way to think through this. But it, doesn't, but it doesn't change it either way, in my opinion. In this section, we see that God endures the vessels of wrath, and these vessels of wrath are persons who defy God and pursue wickedness with all their might. But God tolerates them. And why does God do that? He tolerates them in order to make known the, known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. So what does this mean? It means that some of these vessels of wrath, in my opinion, will be revealed to actually be vessels of mercy in the future. Ephesians 2, 1, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, and it says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And that even those who are currently Christians, he, Paul says, we were just like the others, children of wrath. We lived in a godless way and we were objects of God's wrath because of the way we lived. But then something happens. Verse 5, in the authorized version, says this, it says this, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The, some vessels of wrath, truly sinful, some of those vessels of wrath will be revealed to be vessels of mercy. And how does that happen? Because at some point, this is just, I'm using a metaphor, and I think this metaphor is okay because of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, where it says that God translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so, so just go with me in your imagination to a little shed. And in this shed, there's a shelf of vessels that are vessels of, of wrath. They're marked for destruction. And then on the other side of the shed, there's a bunch of shelves, and there's vessels of mercy, vessels that are going to be kept and, and taken care of and you know, passed on to the next generation, right? God comes into the shed, and on the left are vessels of wrath. And he looks at the vessels of wrath, and he decides, I'm going to take one of these vessels, I'm going to move it from this shelf to this shelf. I'm going to move it from wrath to mercy. I'm going to transfer it. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, I think, I think this is where we, where we can say this. Because Paul says, we were children of wrath even as others. Paul the apostle who's a Christian, in Ephesians he talks about this idea of God's choosing too. But he says, really, he said, you were really, we, were, we were really condemned. Even those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, we were really, we were really condemned but, then, but we didn't know we were going to be saved until God moved us. And I think this is the way you have to think about this, vessels of wrath. He endures the vessels of wrath because some of those vessels of wrath are going to become vessels of mercy. Why doesn't God kill the sorriest sinner in Sheboygan? How come he didn't just rub him out? Because it might be that in the future God is going to save that person and make them a Christian. Let's think about you. Think about what you were like before you became a Christian. Now, some of you guys were really bad. I heard about it. <laughs> some of you guys were just mediocre sinners. But nobody knew what you were going to be. You didn't know. You're just, li- you're just living your life, having a big time. And then one day, out of the blue, a part of God's providential plan... You came to know the gospel some way. Either you're watching it on TV, listening to it on the radio, 
Somebody stopped you in a store and handed you a gospel track, or one of your best buddies said, hey, why don't you come go to church with us this Sunday? And you just wind up in church and you hear the gospel and something like an atom bomb goes off inside of you. You realize what you really are and that you need Jesus. And God endured with you through all your wickedness, through all your sinfulness, so he could make you a vessel of mercy in the future. In the future. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10 says that, says that God, he makes us alive. He does something to us. He calls us from death to life. He gives us new birth. And the, the evidences of the new birth are two things. It's repentance and faith. Now, it doesn't feel like we're passive, but at the beginning we are. We have a negative status with God. We're vessels of wrath. We're on the shelf. We can't move ourselves to the vessels of mercy side. We can't do anything about it, but then God does it. Now, for human beings... It doesn't feel like we're passive because when you become a Christian, it feels like that you did a few things, didn't it? When you became a Christian, didn't it feel like you did some things? Did you, did, you, did you feel like that you made a decision? That you chose? That you believed? That's how it felt, didn't it? Are those true feelings or false feelings? They're true feelings. You did. You wanted him. I went to church on August 22nd, 1993 as a 15-year-old boy. I sat on the front row about where Lola was sitting. Actually, I was on this side. I'm sorry, Lola. I was sitting over here on the right because that's where the sheep are. <laughs> I was sitting on the right. And I went to church that morning, and I did, I, I did in my regular 15-year-old attitude. Did not want to be there. But by the time that service was over, the Lord had saved me. The Lord had showed me that I was a sinner. And when, the, my, when my dad gave the altar call at the end of the service, I came forward and I prayed and I said, Lord, save me. And the Lord saved me. I came in there disinterested and I left there interested. I came in there dead in trespasses and sins and left there alive. God did something to me. Now, when the Lord begins to deal with us about becoming a Christian, when, he, when, he's, when he's saving us, you might say, Part of the new birth is that we begin to understand things differently. Now, we're thinking people. We have to think through things. And sometimes people think through things very quickly. Bam, 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 bam. But sometimes it takes people a little while to reason it out, to really think through it. God opens our eyes, and we begin to think our way through things. And then we begin to understand and know. And then we act on what we know. God causes us to be able to see the kingdom of God, according to John 3. And then he shows us that we are outside of the kingdom of God. And then he helps us to understand that we need to enter into the kingdom through Christ. It's a cognitive process where we're understanding these things and coming to him. People who are raised inside evangelical Christianity often from our early age, they tend to grow into an understanding of the faith. They grow up surrounded by Christianity. They know all these things. They either grow into faith or they grow out of it. And that's a sad reality. You can, you can take your kid to 207 church services a year. Because back in the old days when we had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night and Sunday school, that's what it is. It's 208 Meetings. 208 meetings. That's how many sermons I used to give every year. 208 brand new, unique sermons. 
At least that's what the website told me. (laughs) Every year, you can raise your kid in that environment. And when they're 18 and they they go to college or they move out, start a job, start a career, they can say, you know what, Mom and Dad? Since I'm not at your house anymore, I'm just going to go my own way. Not everybody grows into the faith. Some people grow out of the faith. But just because a person grows out of the faith doesn't mean they're never going to be a part of the faith. Because they get way out there. And we don't know when God is determined to save somebody. We don't know. There's this great, there's this great story about Britain in America where John Flavel was preaching a sermon in Great Britain. When he was an old man, he preached to a boy who was 13 years old. And he preached, preached a message. This boy was in the service. His name was Joel. was his first name. I can't remember his last name. This is in the late 1600s. John Flavel preached a sermon from John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And this 13-year-old boy was there. He did not believe in Christ. He was not a Christian. He had been brought there by his parents. He immigrated to America. And then, 83 years later, 83 years later, he was out in his garden, working in the garden, went back to his mind, came that message and the verse. But as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And there in his garden, after not hearing a single sermon for eight decades, he realized I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ and he lived the last 10 years of his life a dedicated churchman. Just because our kids get up and leave home and they haven't really shown signs of becoming a Christian doesn't mean they're not become a Christian in the future. Our trust and hope and confidence is not in them. Our trust and hope and confidence is in God. And we trust the Lord to work things out according to his perfect, his perfect purpose. Now in verses 25 through 26, the apostle says that these vessels of mercy are not only among the Jews. Now this this Jewish idea is is quite striking because the Jews, they really thought we are the only people in the whole world God cares about. We're the only ones that matter. And Paul is saying to them, this is not true. And he quotes from Hosea. We read here that there is a people who were not my people. There are a people who were not beloved, whom God now calls my beloved people. And the apostle says these are the Gentile believers. To the Jews of Jesus' day and Paul's day, this was shocking to them. But only because of spiritual blindness. Because this was in the Old Testament. Paul is quoting to them, not from some Christian era writing, but he's quoting to them from the Old Testament, Hosea 1.10 and, and chapter 2, verse 23. It's a text that if not for Paul using it here, most people say it's talking about ethnic Jews and how God is dealing with them in the book of Hosea, how he casts them away and brings them back and casts them away and brings them back because of their sins. But the Holy Spirit says to us here in Romans that this is not about ethnic Jews, this is about Gentiles. 
And Paul is pressing the issue of God's sovereign choice, and he is showing that God has the right to open the door to whomever he wants, just as he always has, just like he opened the door to Noah, as he opened the door to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and not Esau, down through the centuries. These Christians in Rome, they needed to know this, and so do you, that God opens the door to heaven to whomever he wants, whenever he wants. Now, verses 27 through 29, the apostle says that if God had left Israel to themselves, if God hadn't made overtures to Israel again and again, they would have been destroyed. They would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, these two wicked cities in the plains who were destroyed with fire from heaven. If God had left Israel to themselves and to their own pursuits, then they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And my friends, if God had left you alone to your own pursuits, you too would have been destroyed. Because you're not going to be sitting out there in the fishing boat and under under the power of your own brain come to faith in Christ. God has to come for you. God has to seek you out. And God is seeking. And God will find. And He will call His people to Himself. Left to yourself... You're not going to make it. If God leaves anyone to their own devices, they will perish in the fires of hell. Now, Romans 3, verse 11, and Psalm 14 say this. And here's what they say. No one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. You say, I did. Yes, you did. Because the Holy Spirit made you hungry and thirsty for salvation. So you did seek after him, but not on your own. Not under your own emphasis. It's God. No one seeks after God. The apostle says here in verses 27 and 29 that there is a, a remnant. Look at the reading here. Israel cries out concerning, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a a remnant. A remnant is part of a whole. So not all Israel will be saved, and not all Gentiles will be saved, but some will be saved. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 13 through 14? I'm going to read it to you. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So if I I go fishing with you, and I start losing your lures, because I'm hanging them up in trees, and you say, hey man, that's okay, I have many. Right? So we're not worried about it, right? But if you go fishing with me, who is the cheapest man on the face of the earth, I probably just have two. (laughs) One for me and one for you. And because we only have a few, if you get it caught in the tree, you're climbing the tree. (laughs) Many and few. Many and few. These things are things we have to remember. Now, sometimes Christians find this kind of thing distasteful. 
And I did too at one point. And as you look through the Old Testament, as you read the Bible, you're going to see God doing lots of things that you will find distasteful. And I, I, was, I, I didn't know how many of these to show. But I'm just going to use one. You're going to see God doing things in the Old Testament that will make maybe you or people you know say that God is cruel and therefore unworthy of respect. Now, sometimes an atheist may say something like this. This is a hypothetical. Tell me who this sounds like, the Christian God or Adolf Hitler. I'm going to read a statement. Who does it sound like? the Christian God, or Adolf Hitler. Here's the statement. Here's, it's, it's in the imperative. Kill both man and woman, child and infant. Who does that sound like? The Christian God or something like Adolf Hitler? That's a direct quotation from 1 Samuel 15, verse number 3. That's what God said to King Saul. To go and kill the Amalekites. To go in and wipe out a whole people group. What's the technical term for wiping out a whole people group? So is God, so is God cruel? Is God, is, it, is God a cruel monster? I know you don't want to answer. But the answer is no. God is just. And so when God commanded the destruction of an entire people group, or as he did in Noah's flood, the destruction of the entire population of the world, that is a just action. And and when you read the Old Testament, remember this, every one of the punishments in the Old Testament for crimes, civil, moral, and religious crimes, all those punishments from the Old Testament, they too were just. They were right. God, unlike humanity, he always dispenses justice to mankind, to creation, except when he decides to show mercy. And he has the right to do that because he is God. He is sovereign. He's the potter. We're the clay. Unlike God, humanity can never dispense justice perfectly because we have limited knowledge We are corrupt, and we are weak. But that is not true of God. God God knows. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. All of God's doings are just, even when they just don't make sense to us. All of God's ways are just. And I bother to point this out because we need to understand that the God whom we serve and worship is not a God to be trifled with. What we tend to do as humans, we tend to recast God or to create a perspective of God that we can like and respect because the world around us, they don't respect our God. And we, and we want the world to respect our God because we want them to believe in Jesus. And so what we do is we say, okay, I'm going to make a God that you might like. And this happens in interesting ways. 
I was working in a factory in Arkansas, and my boss came up to me. His name was Brian. Brian was a, I, I had, actually, I had two bosses named Brian. This guy was a good guy. This guy was a bad guy. But, but they, were both, they were both heathens, though. Just I liked one, I didn't like the other. <laughs> That's what I should say there. Brian came up to me, and he said, Terry, I just found out that, that, you, that you are a preacher, that you're, you're, you went to seminary and all that stuff. I said, yep. And he said, wow, up until now, I thought you were intelligent. So I did what any Christian man would do. I said, why don't you say that in my good ear? <laughs> I looked at him, and I was like, What? I, I and really I liked him. He liked me. We had great we had great time talking together. You know, working together. And he said he said he said I'm an atheist. You know, and he's been to college and he went to Puget Sound University and out in the Northwest. And he just and that was my first time to really know somebody who was antagonistic to Christianity, who I really liked, and I wanted him to believe. I wanted him to believe. And I was tempted to, to kind of, because I knew about liberal Christianity. I knew about pseudo-Christianity and halfway Bible-believing Christianity. How they reinterpret things and arrange things to be acceptable and palatable. And I, and I began to think about that. you know, Because I really wanted Brian to come to church with me. I really wanted to see Brian become a Christian. So, man, we talked all the time about stuff. And I was always trying to reason from his perspective. And when I reasoned from his perspective, guess what happened? He turned me every which way but loose. Every which way but loose. Finally, I decided there's only one way to deal with this. and just say, well, Brian, the Bible says. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. The Bible says this, the Bible says that. And you know, as far as I know, I haven't talked to him, and good night, that was before Mitchell was born. 20 years. I don't know if Brian has become a Christian. I don't even know where he's at. I don't know what happened to him. But I'll say this, probably. Brian is closer to becoming a Christian with me telling him what the Bible says than he is with me trying to be a liberal Christian and halfway pretend to believe the Bible and recast a false God so he can, it can be acceptable to him. So we have to understand that what God is and who he is. And in this era of hypersensitivity within Christendom, we see people doing this, reinterpreting God's revelation the Bible, to suit the ideals of corrupt man because it offends the unregenerate. And my friends, you and I, we have to embrace the biblical view of God or stop saying that we are Bible-believing people. That's what we have to do. And as, this, and as, the, world we goes, as, as the world we live in continues its slide towards Sodom and Gomorrah, this is going to become bigger, a bigger and bigger deal. Because we're going, to be, we're going to be the minority even. We're the minority now, but it's only going to get worse probably. We're going to have to stand for what the truth says. Now in verses 30 through 10-4, the apostle points out that the Jews, they have been pursuing righteousness by law-keeping. 
This is the human condition. Man always wants to make himself better by his own power. I'm going to do better. I'm going to reform. I'm going to straighten up. And the Jews were the same way. They tried by the law to make themselves righteous. But, and they didn't make it. But Gentiles, they pursued righteousness by faith, and they got it. Listen to verses 30 and 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Why didn't Israel make it? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How come Israel doesn't find righteousness? Because they try to pursue it by the works of the law. And they should have tried it by faith, but why don't they try it by faith? Why doesn't Israel pursue it by faith? Look at the answer to the question. In verse 32, they didn't make it because they didn't pursue it by faith. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who is that stumbling stone? It's Jesus Christ. See, here you have God saying, I, the next passage says, I laid something in front of the feet of the Jews to keep them from believing. I put down a stumbling stone. This is said in Isaiah chapter 53 as well. There's a root that sticks out of the ground. Have you ever tripped over a root in the yard or in the garden? It's just there all of a sudden and your toe hits it and boom. God says, this is what I have done. The Jews did not believe because God laid down a stumbling block to them. God put down a barrier to their coming to believe in Christ. And that stumbling was Christ himself. So you you may be thinking, this is really making me think differently about God. Well, that's good. I want you to think about God in 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 a different way, in a bigger way. I want you to see God as as king, as sovereign, just just like Paul is talking about him, as the one to whom we bow before. Now in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we're we're 44 minutes in. And I'm going to spend about three minutes, okay? All in favor of three minutes, say aye. I'm not sure that was unanimous. (laughs) Paul has told us what he knows, and his knowledge has not changed his heart's desire. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul is still burdened for the Jewish people. Even though he knows not all the Jewish people are going to be saved, he knows this. He is still burdened for them. Paul knows that many will believe. Not all, but many. Many will believe and many will be saved. And four years later from prison, the Apostle Paul, who is near death, he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10. This is Paul. Now look, he knows not everybody is going to be saved. He's still burdened for people. 
He so wants to see people saved. And so how does he conduct his life now with this new knowledge? Because what happens if you, if you, if you embrace the idea of God's of, of predestination, those kind of things, sometimes it makes people into a fatalist. They're like, you know what? I'm just going to sit back here and go fishing, you know, and everybody who's going to be saved is going to be saved, and i got nothing else to do. You know, and that's, that's a, hey, that sounds great, doesn't it? You just sit at the house and watch TV and know the kingdom of God's going to expand? And I ain't got to do anything? That does sound attractive. But God has so designed it that the gospel is propelled forward by you and me. And here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10. Listen to what he says. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I'm going I'm to suffer for the elect's sake. I'm going to suffer for those people who will be saved. I'm not going to be... I'm not going to be sidetracked and defeated because I, because I know that not everyone's going to be saved. I'm going to soldier forward because I know that some people will be saved. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop proclaiming the truth because I know that in every place, in every hamlet, in every tribe, in every tongue, and in every place, there are people who will believe. And Paul goes forward with confidence. I'm going to endure these difficult times because I know they will, there will be people saved. There will be people called to faith in Christ. Now, I wonder how invested you are in getting the gospel to the nations. Because this, this is how it works, all right? This is how it works. Are my three minutes up yet? This is how it works. I've been going to church my whole life. Anybody else like that? And the, 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 the least attended service in any Christian church is visitation night. You guys remember when churches had visitation on Thursday nights? The pastor would say, oh, Thursday night, 7.30, we're all going to come down here to the church. We're all going to get little visitation cards. We're going to go out here into the community and pass out tracts and tell people about Jesus and, and try to win some sinners. And you show up, you know, like, oh, man, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to join the special forces, the special gospel forces. We're going to go out there behind enemy lines and, and win the lost. And you show up down there, man, you're just, you're just, man, you're so excited. You get there, and it's just you and the preacher. You're like, where's all my buddies at? Where's all my comrade in arms? And they're not there. And that's, that's happened to me in churches that did not believe in predestination and all that kind of stuff. So I know it's not a theological perspective that makes people not want to be evangelistic. My old pastors probably would say it's laziness <laughs> or hard-heartedness or cold-heartedness. But I just want to ask you this question. How invested are you in getting the gospel to the nations? Getting the gospel across the street? In Christian churches, we'll send a missionary to Africa but we won't send anybody across the street. You know, I, I have neighbors. You guys got neighbors? Sometimes you got neighbors you just love, right? Then you have another class of neighbors that you're not as happy about. 
We should be invested in taking the gospel to the nations. Now, if you're here today and you're seeking salvation through law-keeping, you're not going to make it. You're not going to be saved through the law. You can be saved through Christ. 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when you get to the heavenly world, when you walk through the gate into the heavenly city, it'll say whosoever will may come on one side of the arch. And on the back side of it, it'll say chosen from the foundation of the world. This is God's purposes. Let's pray together. Father, bless us now as we sing this final hymn, I pray. In Christ's holy name.